hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? It's a paradise, put up a parking lot. Hi, everyone. This is Planet Philadelphia here on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM. WGGTLP in Philadelphia and on gtownradio.com. I'm Kay Wood, the host of the show. Linda Rosenwine is our assistant producer reporter. And Linda, I will hand things off to you to tell people what the show is about. Well, today our show is mostly about John B. Goodenough. In memory of him, he was the lithium battery inventor and died recently at 100 years old. He was a friend of the show and was working on a new environmentally friendly battery up to the last few years of his life and was the oldest ever recipient of the Nobel Prize at age 97. First, we are replaying an interview we did with him in 2017 Then we'll be talking with Mark Harris, the senior editor and investigative science and technology reporter at the environmental magazine Anthropocene. And he will discuss his observations on which governmental policies have been helpful and which ineffective in reducing greenhouse gas worldwide. And then, of course, related news items, which will include memories of Dr. Goodenough. So stay tuned, everyone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. We have an absolutely wonderful guest, and it's Professor John Goodenough, who is the inventor of the lithium ion battery. And we're going to actually be doing something a little different, and Linda Rosenwine will be leading on this interview. Okay, well, just a little more on the intro side. The lithium ion battery, of course, is used in all our smartphones, many other home electronic devices, and also some electric cars, among other uses. But today, people who are interested in the environment are particularly excited to hear Dr. Goodenough because he has recently also introduced a new kind of battery that could revolutionize battery technology and significantly lower the use of fossil fuels. In fact, one article in Newsweek says that the new battery has the potential to quote-unquote save the planet. So welcome, (laughs) Dr. Goodenough. Thank you. Before we get started on the details, I want to set the stage. You are a physicist who works in an engineering department at the University of Texas at Austin. That's correct, but I came here by way of a, being a professor of chemistry at Oxford University. Wow, even more interdisciplinary. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what your team works on. You ask what I'm working on. When I came back from World War II, I went to the University of Chicago and got a degree in solid-state physics. And I, from there, I went to the MIT uh, Lincoln Laboratory, and they would give me the assignment to develop the magnetic element for the first ROM memory of the digital computer. 
At the time, it was thought it wouldn't be possible because we were doing it in a, a ferromagnetic spinel, which is a ceramic. But we did manage to give it to them in four years, and uh, they had the first raw memory of the digital computer. And that gave me 10 years to be able to do some basic research on the electronic properties of transition metal oxides. Tell me then what happened to you in the 70s and how this related to your work to conserve energy. In the 70s, the first energy crisis came when the, the Arabs decided to use oil as a weapon against Israel. And I was at the same time, by decree from Congress, told I couldn't do the basic research I was doing because it wasn't targeted towards an Air Force mission. So I accepted a position at the University of Oxford, and I got introduced to electrochemistry. And people give me credit for the lithium-ion battery, but, you know, no one person does everything. And what I did was simply to see what they were working on. In 1967, Cumber and Weber at the Ford Motor Company had said, well, we'll make a new kind of battery because they had found they could get fairly fast ionic conductivity in a ceramic. And so instead of having solid electrodes and a liquid electrolyte, they uh, used a solid electrolyte and liquid electrolytes. But they had to operate at 350 degrees centigrade, and the maintenance has proven too costly for that to really have a commercial market. How did this develop into your work on batteries? That triggered people to think about new ways to make batteries. And the people in uh, France, Jean Ruxel in Nantes and Robert Schulhorn in Germany, were exploring at that time the insertion of lithium into layered sulfides. Now, if you want a rechargeable battery, what you have to have is a, a reversible chemical reaction between the two electrodes. And so I'm afraid I'm being too technical. I'm sorry about that. But a battery uses the electrolyte, which conducts a cation, and is an insulator to the electrons and forces the electrons to go in the external circuit where it does work. But you have to shuttle the cation part of the chemical reaction between the electrodes in the electrolyte, and you have to do it back and forth. Well, the problem was that they thought they'd make a lithium TIS-2 battery, and ExxonMobil set up to do that, and within weeks they began to get fires and explosions, and they realized that battery wasn't safe. And I said, well... If it's a rechargeable battery, I can make a discharge battery. So I said, I know how to put pull lithium out of a layered oxide, but I can't take it all the way out because layered oxides don't exist. So I said, well, how much can we pull out? Well, we then developed the lithium cobalt oxide that is now used in your battery, and that is what fundamentally enabled one to then use carbon as an anode, and the people in Japan were the ones who made the first lithium-ion battery using a graphitic carbon anode 
and my cathode and was licensed by Sony, and Sony made the camcorders and first cell telephones and launched the wireless revolution. So that was the lithium-ion battery original, and it works fine. If you're going to go to an electric car, you've got another problem. You've got to compete with the energy stored in a fossil fuel and a technology that's had a long time to develop. The lithium-ion battery has a flammable electrolyte. You cannot plate a lithium anode without forming dendrites, which is what was causing the fires, because the dendrite is a whisker that grows on the anode, and it grows across the electrolyte and makes an internal short circuit. And with an internal short circuit, you get heating, and you set the electrolyte on fire, and you have the fires that the Boeing people ran into and so on if you don't manage things. Tell us a little bit more about how to think about batteries that can be used in electric cars. Now, because of the success of the wireless revolution, people say, well, why can't we do this with an electric car? Well, you can do it just well enough to have a too expensive hybrid vehicle, What has been demonstrated is that the performance of an electric car is just as good as the performance of ones with an internal combustion engine. The problem is, how are you going to make it safe? How are you going to make it with low enough cost? How are you going to make it with enough energy density to be able to get the driving range you want and be able to deliver the power that you need? That's the issue. And uh, what we're now trying to do, since it's very clear that the modern world is totally dependent upon the energy stored in fossil fuels, and it's also clear that that is a dependency that is not sustainable, not only because of the finite supply of oil and the rate we're using it, but more important, because When you burn a fossil fuel, you can't recycle it, and the exhaust gases that uh, are created by the burning of fossil fuels are choking the cities, major cities like Beijing and Delhi and so on, and you're contributing to the global warming. So there is a very big need to find a way to get an electric car, but to get the electricity that goes into the battery of that from alternative energy sources. If you can get the energy storage for the electric car, you also can do the energy to back up the grid and take the electric power that you get from wind and solar energy and store it for meeting the variable demand. So that's what we're about. Oh, that was a fascinating history. Um, Now maybe you could tell us a little bit about your work on the new battery that you're developing. You said, well, we've done a revolutionary new battery, and it's true. The first thing we did was to discover how to plate a lithium or a sodium anode without dendrites. That increases the energy density. Then we said we can do that from a solid electrolyte. Now, there was a lady who came to visit me from Porto, Portugal, 
and she had developed a remarkable glass. People glass? don't use solid electrolytes is because the cation conductivity in the electrolyte is not fast enough. But her glass is just fast enough to make it possible. Moreover, her glass contains electric dipoles. And so we've been working together to see how we can take advantage of this remarkable glass to find new strategies because we've shown we can plate dendrite-free lithium or sodium anodes, but also to get a different cathode strategy. Tell me your colleague from Portugal, her name. Her name is Maria Elena Braga. She was using glass, is that right? Glass. Well, it's a glass in the sense that it's amorphous. Dry, it was proven to have a good ionic conductivity, but we had to figure out how to age it and properly in order to align the electric dipoles. And now we found that we can do a lot of very interesting things by the interaction between the fast motion of the cations and the orientation and motion of the slower-moving electric dipoles. I, I, I know you've been quoted as having a life mission to decrease dependence on fossil fuels, and you've been telling us some of the ways in which you've tried to do that from the 70s on. Well, from the 70s, I've doing fundamental research. Uh, let me say here at, at Texas, I've been able to go back and continue doing the fundamental work I was doing with somebody who does high-pressure work. But the batteries have stuck with me also, and uh, I do fuel cells as well. And we're looking at electrochemical cells because they're what you need in order to be able to store electric power. And the storage of electric power is one key factor. The other key factor, we know how to collect wind energy and to convert it to electric power. The photovoltaics are at the moment too expensive. We may have to come up with some other ideas is how we replace the photovoltaic cells in order to get the, the solar energy. So you're saying that the new battery that you're proposing won't have the big storage capacity, that'll be something else that is needed? The batteries that we're working on, of course, they will give you better cell telephones, but they will also be able to, we hope, give you cheaper, more reliable electric cars that are able to compete with the internal combustion engine on the highways and to get the air pollution off the highways. Those batteries could also be used to back up the grid, to store energy oh, from good. the windmills. They can be used to drive boats, to do all kinds of things. That's I will nice. say this. I think the people in Hydro-Quebec have developed a battery which has the, the lifetime and lower cost that is needed, I believe, that they've used to, to store energy from a wind farm up in northern Quebec. And I think they're trying desperately to sell that around the world for backing up the grid. I hope we can do as well and a little better than that. But there are a lot of people who are working and doing interesting things, and so... If we don't provide something, I'm sure somebody will. I did want to ask you later about the other advances in batteries and what you think is going to happen. But I wanted to hear a little bit more about your new proposal with the battery that uses glass. What I'd heard 
is that it may be better in terms of the size for the energy that you get. It's less flammable. Well, first of all, the solid electrolyte is not flammable. We are now in a way where we know how to make it mechanically tough and a little bit flexible. And so that anode problem and that is done. On the cathode side, well, we've said if I can plate on the anode, then I can plate on the cathode as well. And, of course, there are people who challenge that. They say, oh, well, you can't get any voltage because you just have a symmetric cell. And just in the process of writing up this morning, the rebuttal saying, no, you've forgotten something, and we can get three volts plating on the other side, but up to a certain thickness of the plate. And we haven't optimized that yet to know just how much capacity we can get in the battery using that plate. But if we can, that's lowest cost, best volumetric energy density that you need for portable devices, including cars. And so if we can get that with the right capacity, we'll be off to the races. We've also figured out a way to work the cathode, which is a higher voltage cathode, and we've been able to cycle it for 15,000 times. Well, it's still going, so uh, the cycle life is not going to be a problem. The rate of charge is not a problem. In fact, it's got fast rates of discharge as well. I guess the cost and availability of materials and the sustainability of those materials is a good... Well, the, the, the most important point, if you're going to use lithium, you'd like to be able to recycle it. And I don't know that anybody has really mastered the recycling problem of the lithium. But lithium is like oil. It's not necessarily located where it's convenient to take it. However, with the sodium battery, you've got the sodium in the sea, and uh, most people have access to the sea. So a sodium battery has many advantages. We can do sodium as well as we can do a lithium battery, but we lose three-tenths of a volt in the process, and the capacity is proportional to the total voltage you have as well as the amount of charge you can transfer before you have to recharge. And glass, I guess, is readily available as well. Well, the glass is very inexpensive, yes. You you use oxygen oxides and chlorine, sodium chloride. (laughs) So sodium chloride is simply table salt. So uh, the glass and a little water to get it started. But in order to make it flexible, we're having to put some polymers in, and that's the most expensive part. But polymers are in everyday use. You alluded to some skepticism that I saw in one article about whether your new proposed battery is going to work. What is that controversy about? Well, the issue they're concerned about is they say, oh, you're violating thermodynamics. Well, we're not violating thermodynamics. We first tested that you could plate the lithium by making a symmetric cell where you put lithium as the anode and lithium as the cathode and you cycle through your electrolyte just to demonstrate that we could plate and strip without a big resistance to that and that we've done it thousands of times so the anode problem is fundamentally solved 
But then they say, see, when you do that, you have zero volts, and therefore you don't get any power because power is the voltage times the current. And uh, what they've not understood is we don't make a symmetric cell. We make an asymmetric cell in which you have lithium as the anode and you have another material like copper as as the cathode. And up to a certain thickness of plating, you're going to have the difference in the electrochemical potentials of the anode and the cathode, and that's how we get three volts. Well, I don't know how much surface area we're going to need, how difficult it's going to be, how much thick we can do to give you the amount of charge that you can transfer before you have to recharge. So that's an issue which we still have to work out, but we're three people doing the best we can. Right. And with, they blew a big trumpet, and now everybody wants to take our time, and we're having a hard time to get time to do the work. I, I'm sure that's a, that's a problem. Let me ask you a little bit more about some of the issues about batteries in general. For use in hybrid cars, some people have said that the energy to mine, make, and run the hybrid cars is more than what you save in using an electric car. Is that true, and would that be true for your new battery? Well, let's put it this way. Clearly, you want to be able to get the electric power from alternative energy sources, and you can get them from alternative energy sources in distributed power, At the moment, people are just taking electricity from the grid. But in countries in Europe, like Denmark and uh, and I think Portugal, they get 20% of their electricity from wind. But that's the maximum they can store in the grid. And so one needs to get more storage to be able to do not only the wind energy, but also the solar energy. I think that argument isn't really fair. You can say, well... How costly is it to fabricate your materials? And we have to keep it simple if we want to get the cost down. And that's the whole idea, is to use materials that are readily available and that are easy to fabricate and are not complicated to manufacture. You do one step at a time, that's all. People can throw cold water on things, but we have to keep trying because... It is absolutely essential that we come to a successful conclusion. Tell me a little bit about fuel cells. I know you work on that also. We've heard on this program about hydrogen vehicles and what are fuel cells versus batteries and what is your opinion about how hydrogen vehicles, how useful they're likely to be in the future? Well, I don't think hydrogen vehicles are going to be competitive. At the moment, you're getting hydrogen from your fossil fuels. You have a very difficult time to know how to store the hydrogen. And people haven't yet figured out how to make those fuel cells so they are cheap and have a long cycle life. The problem is to find a get batteries or fuel cells that will last 10 years. Fuel cells will have a place, but I don't think they're the answer to the electric car. What are your next steps? What are you working on next? I'm not going to tell you all the things we're working on that we think are going to be very important. Right. You but let me say, we've developed the intellectual property, right. and I'm waiting for some battery company 
to step up and say, we'll license it and do the development, because I'm not going to develop the batteries. I'm in the university, and the university developed the intellectual property, but they don't sell products, and I'm not interested at 95 to start to go into business. So what else would you like to tell our listeners? Well, I'll say this. We can do the best we can to develop technology, and the technology is morally neutral. How we use the technology that is important, you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. My hope is that there will be a recognition that we have to make some very important moral choices in the future. I'd also like to emphasize that one of the satisfactions I get with the cell telephone is it brings people from many different cultures together to talk to one another and to understand one another, as well as to empower people who've been pushed outside. And I'm hoping that uh, with the batteries and so on, we can help the poor people in the world. And also, as, as part of science, science is an international community that I think is bringing understanding between different cultures and peoples. And we have to learn to make one world and to have us all recognize that everybody depends upon everybody else, and we have to work together to solve problems and not to fight one another. Has your father's work as a theologian in any way influenced your work or career? Uh, Not really. (laughs) I was dyslexic, and so he was very upset. But he did give me an opportunity to... uh, go away to a boarding school with a scholarship, and then I managed with the GI Bill to be able to go to graduate school. He was a scholar, and I think it was important where you were exposed to somebody who appreciated a scholarship. I've had my doors open for me by various things. It made me think I'm really quite surprised how I seem to have been guided by some funny invisible hand to be able to do what I've been able to do to this point. I wrote a little book called Witness to Grace a few years ago. It's a little dated, but it's there. And if people are interested in that, that would tell you that I was influenced by my father's struggle to come to grips with religious traditions. He himself, I think, wanted to be a scientist and felt the Freudian position was what was central to his thinking. I never was that attracted to the Freudian's ideas. And so in that sense, he influenced me. Yes, but not totally. Right. Just in closing that you want to say about environmental issues? I've just given you a position saying something about my my approach to life. And in the Gospels it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. As scientists, I think we are concerned not only to understand and to respect nature, But the environmental issues are very important because 
we have to understand that it is the planet and the sun that sustains us, and we need to respect it. I have a picture in my mind of the Earth that we saw circling in the vastness of space as a beautiful little island, and of the picture of Easter Island in the Pacific Ocean and the vastness of the Pacific Ocean. And on Easter Island, what's left are stones that said, man once lived here. I don't want us to have converted Earth into a desert where only stones are left to say that man once lived here. Well, that's a wonderful ending. Okay, I don't know if you had any other things to say. Well, thank you so much for taking time, and I know your incredibly busy schedule to speak with Linda. I know the listeners will be fascinated to hear this interview. Just a short break for station ID. This is Rosalind, host of The Power of Food, and you're listening to Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM and online at gtownradio.com. Now for our next guest. I'll be talking with Mark Harris today, and he wrote a very interesting article titled, Are Climate Change Policies a Liability or a Political Asset? And that's what we'll be talking about today. Mark, hi, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, it's great to be with you. And could you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a senior editor at Anthropocene magazine. Um, that's a nonprofit uh, climate solutions journalism outlet. So we're writing really from the point of view of action and hope and trying to uh, get the right policies and the right uh, approaches in place to deal with this climate crisis we're finding ourselves in. Could you tell people what Anthropocene means? Because some people may not be familiar with the term. Right. It's a neologism. It's a new word that's really made up to describe the age we're living in. Uh, if we think of the geological ages of the Earth, obviously the Earth, you know, we've been around for billions of years. Um, and the Anthropocene really reflects the fact that it's a human-made age that we're living in in the Earth, in that the Earth and its natural systems now are really a product of human activity, you know, for better and worse, right? We can feed the whole planet and, you know, people have never been richer overall in the whole world, um, not in on the individual level, but, um, you know, it's the way that we're changing the world and the impact we're having on the world. So that kind of describes the Anthropocene and it kind of puts people at the center of the planet in both a good and a bad way because of the positive and negative impacts we're having on the planet. You've been thinking about how political policies regarding climate change are effective and ineffective. Do I have that correct? Yeah, right. We just started to think about, you know, why is it that when we have a very vibrant political system, what impact actually does standing up for a climate change policy have on the politician themselves and the political systems? Does it actually get them votes or does it harm their political um, life and uh, political activity? And obviously this is all done in the context of, obviously we've had the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is a you know, really massive portfolio of you know, broadly climate-based policies. Um, and just the idea, does that actually help um, the politicians who, who support that? Or 
is there still a lot of resistance? And you based this on reading some studies? How did you come to your conclusions? If right. you came to conclusions. Well, actually, we didn't really come to conclusions that, you know, that the, this story is a part of a series that we call Fixing Carbon. You know, it's about all aspects of uh, carbon emissions and, you know, the increasing level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we really frame these stories as a point counterpoint. You know, so we're saying, are these uh, a liability? And then we'll put some points in favour of them being climate policies being um, a liability to politicians. And then we'll put the counterpoint of perhaps they could be a political asset as well. So it's really rounding up a lot of uh, other people's fantastic writing and rounding up a lot of scientific thought and putting it in a package in a newsletter that goes out every couple of weeks. Um, and then people can sort of just feel like they're educated and understanding the landscape um, we're obviously coming at it from a point of view of recognizing the reality of climate science, but there's still an awful lot to talk about, even you know, even to taking that for granted. When I read the article, it seemed there were certain policies you thought might be liabilities and certain policies that might work better. So could you talk about, I guess, some of the ones you see as liabilities? Right, yeah. When we were starting to think about this policy, I came across a really interesting um, scientific paper. We, we, you know, we, we read a lot of scientific papers, and this was one that was written by some, some economists and scientists at the London School of Economics, um, Georgetown University, and the International Monetary Fund. And what they had done, which I think was really interesting, is they'd looked at how support, public support for governments changed when those governments introduced various policies. And they looked at 30 countries, they started in 2001 and finished at 2015. And so they looked at all the various public polling data that would come up in those countries over that time period, which is a lot. Right? I mean, they, they, they did a lot of research and they came out with some some general rules. Right. They'd seen the policies that the politicians had enacted and then they saw the impact of that. And so, you know, the highlights, I guess, from their research um, and you can see the research in, in the article, we link out to it, is that if politicians tax emissions, right, if they put a carbon tax on, or if they tax the emissions that people or companies are making, then their popularity of the government goes down. But if they just regulate emissions instead, if they put a limit on how much carbon that, that people or companies can emit, that didn't lower the popularity. And so there is a different levels of political cost depending on how you enact different policies. I mean, a lot of scientists and there's been a lot of research to show that carbon taxes are probably the most efficient way of getting our emissions down. You, you know, you hit people in the wallet. If it costs them more to use a more polluting form of transport or a more polluting form of heating or, or food products that have a higher carbon impact, then people are going to use less of them and migrate towards things that are more affordable and less damaging for the planet. So even though, you know, taxes sound great on paper and they're very efficient and all the economists say this is a wonderful way to go, you know, when politicians enact those taxes, it has a political cost for them. Um, whereas if, if they use the other lever that politicians have, which is to regulate industries, then actually that doesn't seem to have such an impact. And I think this is something that politicians could take on board when they're considering tackling the climate crisis is that they have lots of different mechanisms at their disposal and some might be more beneficial to them personally or to their political party than other ones. That's very interesting because this was 30 different countries. So 30 different types of government. 
but this was a fairly broad reaction. Right, exactly. Obviously, every individual country and every individual situation is different. But because they had done this long-term empirical study, their observations carry some weight, right? Because they also had other findings. They said, well, look, these political costs, the, you know, the drop in popularity you get when you ask people to pay more or do less of something they enjoy, which is, you know, often a lot of polluting activities, um, that that political costs can be higher when fuel prices are higher. I guess that's seems intuitive and obvious, but it's nice to see that spelled out. If, if people are already hurting a bit, they don't want the extra pain of complying with a climate policy. And they also found, strangely or not, that the political costs were higher the closer you are to an election. I guess this is what's saying we have politically short memories in that if someone enacts something like the Inflation Reduction Act halfway through their term, that's the best time to do it. Like, don't do it like three weeks before people go and vote and suddenly realize, hey, I've got to, you know, I've got to pay more for this or that incentive is going away. You know, they, they, they looked at, you know, key points in a political, in, in different countries. And obviously elections are very easy and consistent to, to, to look at across different countries. Um, and then one more one the other costs is the political costs are also seem to be higher when inequality is increasing. So it's better, I guess, what they're saying is when the costs of political change and political climate policies are ameliorated by direct transfers to houses, unemployment benefits to people who lose their jobs in the transition to green economy, then that, that obviously helps the, the medicine go down and uh, it kind of offsets some of the political costs. That's also very interesting because I do remember when here in the U.S., economists and politicians were really bullish on globalization and NAFTA and all of these agreements. And they made promises to workers that they would not suffer too badly. And it turned out that those promises were not kept. So maybe people feel a little untrusting. Right. I mean, that's almost certainly true. Um, I mean, and that... that the scientists didn't really dive into the trust issue, but what they did emphasize was that having the social insurance mechanisms to cope with any transitions associated with either the taxes or the regulation was actually really imperative to keeping those uh, political costs manageable. And, and actually, if they did so, if people did actually put the mechanism in place to, to retrain people, say, from fossil fuel industry to, to green jobs, then actually the political costs Kind of disappeared there was the, there was no penalty for introducing those policies we've talked about liabilities maybe mm. we should talk now about some of the things you think work well yeah so there are some technologies and systems that play well really across the political divide um, and so we're seeing now that um, solar power is really nearly as popular in states that are traditionally republican as those that are traditionally democratic be, be, because it's a, a technology that really plays to a popular theme of sort of independence and cost saving, it generally tends to be something that saves people money if they can afford the upfront capital costs. And it gives them a certain independence, which kind of isolates them from, for instance, you know, gas prices, other more volatile you know, forms of energy. I mean, it's really interesting that we're seeing uh, nuclear power, you know, which I know has been controversial, particularly, you know, from the left, where people have pushed back against something that's perceived to be a polluting technology. But we're now starting to see 
it having a renaissance uh, you know across both parties where we're talking about you know it's genuinely carbon free and it seems to be one of the systems that we might need to actually really get to a you know, zero carbon economy um, as quickly as possible. Obviously, there are still a lot of uh, question marks about it, but it's kind of interesting that there are these policies, there are technologies that actually cut across the population, you know, for various reasons. I mean, it, it, nuclear power is interesting because um, it, it kind of appeals to different sides for different reasons. But you know what, if it actually ends up getting us to a low carbon or a zero carbon economy, you know, perhaps we'll live with that tension. You've mentioned uh, solar power and nuclear power. What about something like geothermal, which does have a high upfront cost, but then once it's there, it doesn't cause any problems as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. Geothermal is really interesting. I would say it's still an emerging technology from the point of view of deploying. Um, a lot of the geothermal systems right now only work in certain locations where there's quite a lot of, you know, heat uh, very close to the surface. Obviously, famously, Iceland is powered largely by geothermal energy um, because it's basically one big volcano under there. Um, but there are emerging technologies that should hopefully mean that geothermal uh, systems can be used pretty much anywhere. It's still going to be a high upfront cost, but that is the very definition of consistent energy because there's a lot of heat underground even like solar panels obviously are susceptible to night times and clouds, um, you know, that that isn't the problem with geothermal, which is very consistent. Um, so I, I guess we'll see what happens when, you know, to, to, to policies and politicians when they start to say, let's give some more incentives to geothermals. And we'll, we'll start to see whether that is something that is one of these popular technologies across the board or whether it, it, it's one that um, has a little bit more controversy attached to it. It would seem to me that for former fossil fuel workers, geothermal would present a real uh, employment opportunity. Right. You know, and there are some people who have actually made that change. The same technologies that were developed for fracking, uh, oil and gas can definitely have application to the geothermal systems. Um, so now we really just need to have some technology development and it's probably not going to create these, you know, these very large power stations that we've been used to in the past, right? It's it's almost more suited to a smaller systems, but it, the, the, the cost is very high right now. The question is, to, in order to incentivize that, is, is a politician going to say, right, we'll slap a, you know, a much larger tax on fossil fuels in order to level the playing field so that geothermal becomes attractive or even, you know, competitive? with fossil fuels. And, and that's really the, the, the crux of things, isn't it? Fossil fuels are so cheap. I mean, they really are so cheap. They're so, they're so easy. And the, and the oil and gas industry has been very effective at getting the, keeping the price down and finding new forms and new deposits that in order to be able to level the playing field to get people excited about and get people interested in using more renewable energies, there has to be some political um, action to, to get us there because the marketplace isn't going to get us there in the sort of time frame that we need. And so those are the challenges that the politicians are facing, whether to slap a tax on the on the fossil fuels. And so obviously what we've seen from the Inflation Reduction Act, it's largely incentive based. So it's incentive rather than punitive. So people are incentivizing solar farms, incentivizing nuclear power and fusion you know, experiments. 
But obviously that still represents a transfer of money from the taxpayers to industry, but perhaps that's the world we're living in, right? That's the policies mm -hmm. in order to get to where we need to go. Um, we have to share out the pain and, and accept that perhaps the worst polluters are getting a bit of a free pass. I know in the US, the fossil fuel companies get lots of subsidies. What about recalibrating what is subsidized instead of putting taxes on things specifically? Absolutely. You know, it seems crazy that we have to incentivize the green technologies only to catch up with the incentives that the oil and gas industry are already enjoying. Um, it certainly would make sense to reduce those to a minimum. Obviously, the other challenge that the US faces is it being a federal system in that you have a lot of people working at state levels. And so you have a certain tension between uh, central government and individual local governments. Um, whose incentives can sometimes align and sometimes actually clash. So, you know, the federal government might put a tax on something, whereas a state that is heavily dependent on, on, on the fossil fuel industry may subsidize it. So you end up with a, a very complex landscape, both economically and politically, that can have interest, you know, divergent effects across such a big nation. Is there something we're missing? Yeah, so I, I think the other really interesting part of this is if we see that climate policies are make sense, and actually there's broad support in, in the US for action on climate change, and you know, e e even a majority support for people who actually believe that we should be doing something, we should be doing more to tackle the climate crisis. Why aren't we seeing more green politicians and green parties and green people in power? If climate policies meant votes, you would expect to see green parties in power around the world. And instead, that's not really true. They don't rule outright anywhere in the world. And even in Europe, where they have had the most success, they're really forming part of governing co coalitions, you know, at various levels of government. You know, in the US here, we've had no Green Party ever elected to um, federal office. And so th there is that interesting question about whether our political systems are really capable of having good representation of climate policies pretty much anywhere in the you know in the developed world where free and fair elections occur and so i think that's just an open question of how politicians can survive and encourage climate policies it used to be perceived as a single issue right i think we're now seeing that actually climate policies really span a, a very wide part of what we would consider to be government everything from sort of you know uh, social measures, housing, transport, enforcement, and of course the economy and industry as well. So I think we're all in, we're all just hoping for politicians keep the focus on climate, but still somehow get elected. And that's, that's a big mm -hmm. challenge. What if politicians explain the connections and the way it would make people's lives better and their children's lives better? I mean, can politicians make connections to things that actually affect people at home? I think for a long time, global warming was a little bit abstract for people, but obviously in the last few years, we've seen it really come home to roost, both in terms of extreme weather, you know, storms, heat waves, things like air quality, and you know, the uh, you know, problems with food pricing going up. You can kind of see those impacts. And I think um, you know, politicians need to be more explicit about drawing those connections, particularly not just providing a doom-laden viewpoint, but showing how the right climate policies can actually really help everybody. Um, you know, there are you know, more people employed in 
green industry than there are in many fossil fuel industries that are declining. And those jobs are great jobs. They don't involve the, you know, perhaps the same hazards that uh, going down a coal mine can do. You know, for all that we needed those forms of fuel while we were rapidly industrializing, now there are there are really great alternatives for a lot of people and their local jobs, right? I mean, in, in, inherently a lot of green policies are local, local first, right? It's all about regaining that control from systems that are, you know, international and abroad and, you know, much, you know, with food coming from a long way away, fuel coming from a long way away. There's a lot of messaging that could actually help, but we're not always seeing that. It's, I, I think it really is an open question about or how those politicians who believe um, and want to take action on climate change can, can, can ensure that they connect with their populations to, to, to keep them, you know, to, to get elected. Is there anything else? It's, it's really great that your listeners are interested in this, that you're interested in this. I think that we're all going to have to think about some tough policies that we're going to need in the years ahead. And having these discussions out loud and talking about the problems with them, I think, is really is really the most important part of it. And so thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you, Kay. It's been very nice talking with you, too. Right. We may have time for news, Linda. Do you have something for us? Yeah, today, because we're focusing on honoring John Goodenough, that's what I'm mostly going to talk about. One of the things that stood out to me was the value of interdisciplinary work, the value of exposure to different people with different ideas, doing different work in different places. And that may have really helped him come up with new ideas. His brother, Ward Goodenough, was also an anthropologist. So that was another area he was exposed to. Another thing that stood out to me was his generosity to the ideas of his colleagues. Initially, at least, he did not get a patent for the lithium battery, and he never got money for it. He gave the money away to research institutions. Now, let me turn to the person. John had no children. Instead, he was a mentor and a teacher to others. And you could hear in this interview the moral grounding that one supposes he got from his father and maybe his mother too, even if not the specific religious ideas. He was kindly, courtly, and lived simply not drawing attention to himself. I was really touched by the remarks he made during the week of the Nobel Prize ceremonies in Sweden about his wife. He cared for her in her last several years of life. He maintained a house in southern New Hampshire, a colonial house with a garden and a tiny little apple orchard and could be found piling wood and stoking his fireplace and being generous to his neighbors. Then also turning to the battery work that he was doing at 96 at the end of his life, the new ideas for batteries. And while I don't know what has really happened with that particular battery, I know that there were critiques that it was violating the first law of thermodynamics, which he disputes, as you heard. And that was a critique of the Maser, the forerunner to the laser, which turned out not to be true also. And then there was also a critique of his battery that he misinterpreted his data. But I assume that his team continued to work on that. 
turning to batteries more generally, we know that batteries for climate change and for the environmental movement will be critical. Lots of people since we talked to him have been working on all kinds of new ideas for batteries using all kinds of different materials. One suspects different batteries may be important for different uses, some small ones for small things, for bigger ones, for large storage. So we may need all these ideas. And in terms of the materials, I mean, a lot of these batteries have used rare minerals such as lithium. When we talked to Nicola Ferralis some while ago, he said, well, you know, all these materials are mined out of the earth or they grow on the earth. So you can't get away from that. And even sand, which is one of the ingredients I understand in glass, it may be in short supply, he said. So we'll have to see how all the issue of materials develops. Then I wanted to also make a few remarks about Mark Harris's interview. The Anthropocene magazine focuses on collecting information on positive solutions, as you heard. Check it out. You will hear and read about all kinds of great innovations, some of which may not come to fruition, but they're really marvelous to hear about. Recently, they published something about reports on climate news. 51,000 articles on climate news published in 2020, and it's mostly negative about the climate doom and gloom, inspiring fear, not action, which he told us is not what the Anthropocene is trying to do and not what we're trying to do in this program. Now, his remarks, of course, were about governmental policies. One of the things I gleaned from them was that positive reinforcement works better than negative reinforcement. That's an old psychological principle. So changing regulations, giving incentives works better than taxing people, the negative reinforcement. A related article was published in the Anthropocene, 430 studies of interventions for individual behavior change, not policy change regarding climate actions. And again, they found positive reinforcement seemed to work better than other kinds of things. Social signals or social comparisons, which is big positive reinforcement for human beings, works the best and better than money, which is also a positive reinforcement, which works better than just information. Limits of that study were the ease of any particular behavior change has to be considered, and they didn't study combinations of interventions. Another thing that I worried about regarding policies is what is going to happen if we overpromise from, like, let's say, the Inflation Reduction Act or other things about helping the climate and things don't work as well as we hope because it's more complicated or various things intervene, is that going to backfire in terms of the public's response to making the changes that need to be changed? So those are my thoughts about those two interviews. I don't know, Kay, what your thoughts were about some of those interviews. Well, it was a delight to re-listen to your interview with John Goodenough. His kindness 
and the spirit of him really came through as well as the intelligence talking about his discoveries and his modesty. It was really a pleasure to listen to for me. And then on the second interview, talking with Mark Harris, I did enjoy talking with him. And as you said, the positive reinforcement, according to the studies, does seem to work better, which I suppose knowing people is not that much of a surprise. But talking about motivation, I saw an op-ed today in Capital and Maine talking about motivating people to deal with the climate emergency and talking about patriotism and framing it as part of loving the country as a way to people to see that there's a need for action. I don't know how people will react to it, but I thought it was an interesting idea, especially since we just had July 4th Independence Day holiday. But I think we're running out of time and I should just tell people that the next show will be July 21st. We hope you do tune back here to Planet Philadelphia. And if you wish to get in touch with us, you can email me at planetphila at gmail.com or call in to leave a comment or suggestion or whatever at our phone number, which is 484-278-1800. Four six. Happy summer, everybody. Yes, happy summer. Hello, I'm Tracy Carluccio, and I'm Deputy Director of Delaware Riverkeeper Network. We're an organization dedicated to the Delaware River watershed and the four states that take part in it. We've been working on the issue of perfluorinated compounds or PFAS for many years, and there's been an historic settlement with 3M for the contamination that they have caused to people across the United States. And if you want a little more background information on PFAS, go to our website, www.delawareriverkeeper.org, and put PFOA in the search engine. And you'll see a background with lots of details about PFAS in our watershed and beyond. Hi, this is Eve Gutman with Earthquaker Action Team. Vanguard, the global investment company headquartered nearby in Chester County, is the world's largest investor in fossil fuels. Vanguard also consistently does not use its influence as a major shareholder to push the companies it invests in to do better on climate and environmental justice. Vanguard has built its business on people's retirement, but its investments are destroying the future now. Activists in Philadelphia, across the country, and beyond have been pressuring Vanguard to do better. Now we're increasing the pressure with Never Vanguard a collective effort to pledge to not invest or work with Vanguard until it deals with its climate problem and invests for a livable future. You're invited to join us. Sign the Never Vanguard Pledge and spread the word. For more, please visit eqat.org. That's eqat.org. Don't miss the 2023 Black Star Film Festival, the world's premier celebration of Black, Brown, and Indigenous film and visual art. From August 2nd to August 6th, Black Star will feature over 90 films around the world. Also panels with leading creatives of color, also parties, and more. Attend in person in Philly, along Broad Street, or watch online. 
tickets and passes are now on sale. Access card holders are eligible for discounts. Learn more at blackstarfest.org slash festivals.